This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Foolanthropy. Foolanthropy is the Motley Fool's year-end, not-for-profit, giving campaign where we encourage members and listeners to give at give.fool.com. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It is our last podcast of the year. Thank you for joining with me wherever you are. Perhaps you're around the apartment or the house. Perhaps you're on vacation. I'm delighted that you're making a little time to spend with Rule Breakers as we close out 2016. And yes, it is the final episode of the month. Therefore, it is mailbag for Rule Breaker Investing. It is our December mailbag. And I'm looking forward. I've got seven delights queued up for us this week. But before I start, I just want to mention our new piloted program. I mentioned this a few weeks back. It's Fool's Eye on Investing. And we're doing this one for you. We think we can help you and help the world invest better. Again, it's called Fool's Eye on Investing. It's got an email address, ioninvesting at fool.com. Here's its purpose. Do you see anything in the financial world that you think needs to be fixed or done better? Do you have some questions about how you or a friend are being treated by a financial professional? Well, we're here to help. Tell us the story. Let us know. That's ioninvesting at fool.com. Do you have a bank pressuring you to open up eight accounts? We're sorry to hear that, but we think we can help. Let us know. Do you have some questions about what you're seeing around you in your office or your industry? Are you a whistleblower? Well, again, Fool's Eye on Investing through the reach of our worldwide Fool community is ever watching and aiming to right wrongs. So let us know. And if we agree, we'll take action. That's ioninvesting at fool.com and pass it on to a friend as needed. All right. Up first this month, this one comes to me from Nathaniel. He's at ShooterF16. And there's a reason he's at ShooterF16 because I think that's his job uh, on Twitter. Nathaniel writes, at RBI Podcast, on your last mailbag, you answered how you felt picking stocks during the Great Recession. How about now? We're at full employment, wages increasing, stocks at all-time highs. My job was easier during 2009, Nathaniel writes. I didn't pick stocks, I just bought the whole U.S. market. All right, good question. How do I feel picking stocks now? Well, the answer is, I feel pretty good picking stocks now because, as you're pointing out, the market has rewarded us for doing that for the last several months and several years. So, very naturally, um, I feel like I can always find another stock to pick. Now, the truth is that that's how I am the default setting of me. Most of the time, I have a watch list that numbers far more than the number of stocks I can actually pick in Motley Fool Rule Breakers or Stock Advisor or Supernova. So, I already have a bench of fresh recruits that I'm thinking about at all times. I think, Nathaniel, obviously your intent here is to say, hey, does it feel too easy to pick stocks? With the market so high, are we going to look back as we crest into 2017? Are we going to say, that wasn't a great time to be invested? And all I can tell you right now is, we won't know for another five years or so, but two years out of every three, the stock market rises, and one year out of every three, it falls. And it doesn't feel good when you're in one of those years where it drops. They happen and they recur all the time. But the good news is, we're not scoring ourselves based on how the market does in 2017, nor are we celebrating how 2016 went. Each is just a year in time for us as investors. So, whether or not the market's in for a good year ahead, I'm going to keep picking stocks and in my own portfolio, 
going to keep buying as I do now at the age of 50, as I've done for several decades, and I'll be doing for several decades more. So, Nathaniel, I can't really tell you. I'll just say the world feels a little weird to me, but outside of that, um, I don't find it particularly disconcerting to have to pick new stocks, as I did during the Great Recession. <laughs> Clearly, totally different market conditions. But I also think that conditions look good, as they have for several years now, for those of us who are looking for good companies to take a part interest in and, uh, and hold for at least three years. And a corollary to that question, this one comes from Adhoda Mare. And Adhoda Mare wrote, When it feels hardest to buy, we're often going to end up with our best returns, quoting me. Uh, and I said, The other side of the coin is true. That's what you, you said, quoting me. You then went on and said, So true. That's the feeling I have with Amazon all the time. It always feels like a bad idea. And that's worth keeping in mind as well. Often, the ones that always feel like a bad idea, if they're great companies, it's because they just seem to go up and up and up without us. And so, it never feels good to buy into a stock that has already risen substantially in value. But I can tell you, some of my most rewarding experiences are as an investor have been when I decided after a stock, for example, after Priceline had already gone up eight times in value, I think the year was 2010, I re-recommended it to Motley Fool Stock Advisor, and it's up another five times in value since then. We've talked about this a lot in Rule Breaker Investing. In my experience, the winners tend to keep on winning. That's why it never feels like a good idea to buy Amazon for many of us, because it just seems to have gotten away 10 years ago, five years ago, last year, missed it last month. Don't be that person who keeps thinking that. Look ahead. Ask yourself, where's the world headed? Who's winning? Who's taking us there? I think you're going to find great companies like Amazon have places in your portfolio. And I'm not talking about 2002 or 12. I'm talking about 2017. Number two. Number two comes from Leonardo Pazuban. And Leonardo said, Hi, David. As always, I start by saying thanks. Love your Rule Breaker podcast. Well, thank you, Leonardo. I just wanted to give you a small challenge here. You say, find a product you like, and that's a good way to find a stock to buy. Well, Leonardo writes, I'm a weird guy. I bought my first iPod when the 80 gig model came out simply because it was the first model that would carry my entire music collection by then. I had more than 60 gigs of music, and what I had back then was a Sony mini disc. Remember that thing no one bought in the 90s? Because I could store a lot of discs and rewrite them over and over. I know I'm a weird guy with very special tastes, and if I had been asked which stock to buy, I'd go straight to Apple instead of Sony, obviously. The thing is, if there's a product you really, really like and it's perfect for you, it might not be the one everyone else is getting, and thus not the one the maker is profiting from. Keep up the great work, Leonardo Pazabon. Well, Leonardo, I'm taking your question. Uh, I think I'm taking it in the right spirit. Maybe I'm going a half step out of it, but I think this question is largely about, if you like the product, should you buy the stock? And I've always described that as one starting point for trying to decide a stock that would fit your portfolio. A lot of investors, in particular maybe people who don't use Motley Fool Services, um, don't necessarily have that many ideas. So they're kind of casting around looking for, you know, what what's a stock that they would want to buy or something they should add to their portfolio. And for that kind of a person, I think a great answer is, well, what's in your refrigerator? What are you wearing? Where are you visiting online? What do you love? What are your hobbies? What's your profession? All of those classic Peter Lynch, buy what you know. Um, Warren Buffett's circle of competence. I've talked about that a lot for all rule breakers. 
Um, however, a lot of us are Motley Fool members, and for you, you might get a lot of ideas because we come up with a lot of ideas. We've got our starter stocks when you join one of our services. We've got five Best Buys now, or ten Best Buys now, depending on the service that come out each month. Stocks that we like over the next three plus years for that month. Uh, we also have new picks that come out. That's the lifeblood of our service. And so it's very natural for that sort of a person to say, I have a lot of ideas. And to them, I say, well, which are the ones that speak to you? We're all different, and we need to figure out what makes sense for us. Now, to continue on the spirit of Leonardo's question, you know, what about the Betamax or the Sony mini disc? What about the product that you thought was good for a while, that looked like it was a winner, but it ends up being a bad stock? And to that, I answer simply, that happens sometimes. In fact, I'm going to tell my short story about 3DFX versus NVIDIA right now. I think I've done this at least once in 2016, but one thing I've learned is that I need to repeat myself more. I don't need to keep coming up with new tricks all the time. Sometimes I need to re-emphasize some of my key points and stories. So, quick story about 3DFX. This was a graphics card manufacturer 10 or 20 years ago. Company during the hot cycle of new video games coming out for PCs, kind of more pre-console, before things like the Xbox got really popular, a lot of us were playing games on PCs, and you'd want to have a pretty souped-up PC with a good graphics card, and 3DFX was a category leader at that point. This is around the year 1990-ish. Um, so, 3DFX was so good that on new big selling games that would come out, like if Doom would come out as a new video game, 3DFX would have its logo on the front cover of the Doom video game box because it was telling you 3DFX inside, kind of like Intel inside. It was telling you that if you have a 3DFX inside your computer, this game of Doom or NBA 2000 or whatever, 1990, whatever was selling back then, it will appear better your computer will have sweeter graphics if you have a 3DFX card running this game than if you don't. So, a beautiful consumer-positioned brand. I went out and bought a 3DFX card because I wanted to have the best graphics when I brought a new game home. Here's the problem. 3DFX ended up being not that great a company. The CEO was about average, um, and he had an oncoming competitor at the time, a little company called NVIDIA that looked like an upstart to me. And uh, I decided I was just going to plink down my money on 3DFX because it was 3DFX that was out front. Their logo was on the boxes of all the big games. NVIDIA wasn't as impressive to me. And what ended up happening is that I picked the wrong horse. 3DFX, within a few years, was losing money. And a few years after that, NVIDIA actually acquired 3DFX, which was kind of a rude slap in the face for those of us who had uh, a, a stock that had greatly declined, and then we're getting a small premium buyout from the company that we ignored buying in the first place. I made the wrong call. Um, so, two thoughts to close on this, Leonardo. The first is that you don't have to just buy one stock. You can buy Sony, and you can buy Apple, and even if one of them doesn't do so well, if you've picked a real winner in a meaningful field, that winner will usually outstrip all the losses of your loser. There was a book, I have not read it, but it was popular about 15 years ago, called The Gorilla Game, which kind of advocated for this. It said, in new technologies, it's hard to know which is the gorilla, which is going to be the monster that wins, so just buy them all, and then slowly sell off the losers, and you're left at the end with the winner. And that was posited by The Gorilla Game. So, you can kind of take that mentality and just buy both, 3DFX and NVIDIA, or Sony and Apple. And my second and final thought is, even sometimes when you get the wrong horse, even if you've blown it, you can still recognize that and eventually change your stripes. In fact, I'm really happy to say 
This is a slightly self-congratulatory note here in point number two for Mailbag this month that I did recommend NVIDIA for Motley Fool Stock Advisor uh, years later. And while I say years later, it is actually still years ago now. The first recommendation that I made of NVIDIA and Motley Fool Stock Advisor was April 15, 2005. I think I mentioned this a podcast or two ago because it was tax day 2005. And NVIDIA is up 15 times since then. I think a member forwarded me a note that said, for 2016, the number one performing stock on the S&P 500, God bless it, was NVIDIA, which at the time, a week or two ago, was up 176% for the year. So, the good news is, your choices are not permanent as an investor, and you can recognize you got it wrong, and you can change your stripes and still win, especially if you allow patience and time to play out. Hope that was helpful. Okay, and number three, which is kind of paired with Leonardo's question, is from at Teddy being Teddy, a frequent mailbag participant. Thanks again for another good question, Teddy. It runs like this. David, ever have conflicts where you love the investment and its potential, but you hate the business? For example, vulture loans, tobacco, Teddy writes, Monsanto, etc. So, it's kind of the other side of the coin. The previous question was, what if you love the product? Is that going to be a good stock? What if you hate the product and you think it's going to be a good stock? How to act then? And Teddy, I think you already know my answer to this one because I tweeted it back out at you uh, a few days ago. All I did is tweet you back one of my favorite signature lines, which is make your portfolio reflect your best hope for our future. In other words, very simply, I think you and I should have our dollars invested in the things that we think are the best things for us and for the world at large. So, for me, I've never recommended a vulture loan company. I'm not interested, in particular, in tobacco. And I, you'll never see me recommend any casino company just because I don't like businesses whose core business is to cause people to lose money. We each have our own list of things that we do want to invest in or not. I really think you should be true to those things, though. I think Jack Bogle said something great. I quoted him on last week's Rule Breaker Investing podcast when he talked about the difference between success and character and that you really can't enjoy or truly feel success unless you've done it with character. So, I think, I think at the end of a successful investment, you're not going to feel great if it wasn't invested in something that made the world better. There's my thought. And before I continue, let me mention, as I did at the top of the show, that each year The Motley Fool hosts a campaign to give back and invest within our communities. We call it Foolanthropy. And this year, we've partnered with Growing Power to bring sustainable food and employment training to at-risk communities within the United States. Roughly one in seven Americans don't have access to healthy, safe, and affordable food. Growing Power is on a mission to combat this food insecurity, and we want to help them succeed. In fact, we like to pick smaller charities where we can really make a difference, and we'll be doing that with your help with Growing Power. Our goal is to raise $60,000, and since it's near the end of the holiday season, I'm happy to say we're real close and you can help us get over the hump. Hope you'll help. To learn more about Growing Power and to make a donation, please visit give.fool.com. Again, that's give.fool.com. The next one comes from James Chen, who wrote in, Hi, David. I want to start off by saying how grateful I am for The Motley Fool. Ever since my brother, who is also called David, introduced me to The Motley Fool earlier this year, I have binge-listened to every single episode. Wow, this is flattering of Rule Breaker Investing, of Industry Focus, 
and of market foolery. As an entrepreneur, and James is an entrepreneur, you're already very busy, James. I'm touched. I hope you're getting some sleep, uh, or do get more sleep in 2017 now that you've caught up. Anyway, as an entrepreneur, he goes on, who also recently started a stock portfolio, listening to The Motley Fool has become an integral part of my weekly routine. Your podcasts have greatly influenced my stock picking philosophy and ignited a passion for investment that I didn't know I had. And that is a wonderful thing for me to be able to share. Thank you, James. I'm happy to report, you go on, that as of today, about six months into the process, my portfolio is just about tripling the market. Fingers crossed. Just finished listening to your latest podcast on five stocks to put under the tree. I had a great time guessing which stocks you were going to recommend. I guessed all of them except Amazon. I love Amazon and am a shareholder myself. But don't you think at $770 a share, it's a little expensive to be a kid's Christmas gift? And uh, that is a very funny observation. I, I will say this: I wasn't at all thinking of the prices per share that each of these stocks are at, and primarily because there are ways today to buy fractional shares through sites like ShareBuilder, and you can find other resources on the internet or ask questions at Fool.com. You you don't have to buy a full share of a company in order to be able to let's say buy into Berkshire Hathaway or Amazon.com, or Priceline, which is over $1,000 a share today as a stock. So, um, I want want to make sure you know that, but I still love the humor of your observation. Anyway, your real question you go on to say is, you wanted to ask regarding the ProShares Ultra Pro QQQ and other similarly leveraged exchange-traded funds. You say you're a big fan of picking individual companies, but you can't help but notice that many of these leveraged ETFs have performed just as well, if not better, than many of the best-performing individual companies over the last five years, even if you take into account the higher expense ratio. By the way, we're going to be defining a couple of these terms. What is your personal opinion of these investment vehicles? If we believe that the market as a whole will rise over the long term, then it seems like these leveraged ETFs can offer the risk tolerance of an index fund, but still have the upside of individual stock picks. Thanks again, James Chen. Well, thank you, James. So I'm not a big fan of the leveraged ETFs, primarily because they are trading vehicles. They are intended, for the most part, as one-day investments, and that's how they're used. If you see the trading volumes on them, you'll understand. So, they're really not designed to be long-term investment vehicles. They probably could be treated that way. Just realize that if and when the stock market declines 25%, which it's done a few times over the last decade or two, all of a sudden, you'll be down 75%. You'll be down 3x whatever the market's doing. And so, while it certainly is true that over the last five years, these funds have been good performers, mainly because the market's been up, um, not a lot of people, I, I think, can stand or stomach the downside that has not been evident in the last five years that is very evident if you're a holder of these funds. They also do have higher expense ratios. You mentioned that. James, I want to define my term really quickly. Um, so, expense ratio is just the percentage of your money each year that vanishes to the fund manager. You're paying your fund manager. A lot of Americans don't realize this. We are paying our fund managers um, an invisible amount that disappears from our account each year. And typically, for managed funds, it's about one percentage point. It can often be higher. And this doesn't include funds that have loads on them where you're paying a sales fee up front to buy into the fund, which we've never liked at The Motley Fool. So, if you're paying 1% a year and you've invested $10,000, that means you've just spent $100 paid to your fund manager. And if, over the course of time, your account rises from $10,000 to $20,000, you're now paying $200. I'm not sure you're getting 
extra service. It's just that since they're taking a percentage of your assets, it goes out every year. And for leveraged ETFs, that expense ratio is closer to about one percentage point a year. And that's pretty high for something that functions mostly as an index fund. Again, having featured Jack Bogle in this month of gratitude for Rule Breaker Investing, you know that we love how Jack gets his expense ratios down to about 0.1%. In other words, about one-tenth of 1%. So, for these reasons, I'm not a big fan. These are trading vehicles. Um, but if you like, James, maybe take a small portion of what you have, not too much, and put it in that fund and watch and see what happens and learn. I'm a fan of doing that as well. Thanks for a great question. Okay, three more points. Point number five. This one comes from Bill Housley of YFC. Bill, you wrote me and said, Hi, David. As I continue to learn, new terminology is thrown my way like snowballs at middle school winter camp. Yesterday, it was, quotes, short squeeze. At first, I thought it might be in reference to Danny DeVito and some movie about the markets. I found a website called Short Squeeze that listed the, quotes, percent of float that is shorted. I think I understand short squeeze, Bill writes, but an explanation of percent of float that is shorted, that would be helpful. And should this number be used in evaluating a purchase? Cheers, Bill Housley. Cheers and Merry Christmas to you, Bill. Okay, so here are my thoughts on short squeezes. First of all, I think we need to define our terms in two ways. I'm going to explain a short squeeze and shorting stocks, and then I'm going to talk about percent of float. So, a lot of people know of shorting, they might have heard it before. It's your opportunity to make money on a stock if it drops. So, most of us think just about buying a stock and hoping it goes up. But the truth is, if you're contrarian minded, uh, and some people specialize in this, it's not a big thing for me, uh, you can make money when stocks drop. The reason it's not a great idea is because stocks and the stock market do tend to go up over time. But there are certainly some failed companies out there, some companies that I've personally shorted in the past and done okay on. So, you can, yes, you can play a stock or the market to drop. And that's when you short it. And to explain that very briefly, what you do when you short a stock is in your brokerage account, you are going to just tell your broker to sell. So it might be your online discount brokerage account, or maybe you pick up the phone and you're going to be selling. It's going to be a stock that you don't have. Let's just pretend that you're crazy and you've decided you're going to short Apple. I wouldn't do it myself, but let's say you want to short Apple. So what you do is you, you indicate that you're, you're going to sell, we'll just make it up, 100 shares of Apple. Now, since you don't actually have 100 shares, your broker, it's his or her job to go out and find those 100 shares, usually just from a fellow account holder's account somewhere else in the firm. It's invisible to, to both of you. It's perfectly ethical. It's fine. They're just borrowing that person's shares, and they're selling them right then. And your account is immediately credited with the proceeds of 100 shares of Apple. So, you just got a cash influx. That feels really good. The problem is, eventually, you're going to need to buy buy those shares back and replace the borrowed shares back to that other account in-house. And your hope, since you're shorting the stock, is you're still trying to buy low and sell high, but you're doing it in reverse order. You're selling high, and you're hoping the stock will drop and that you can buy it lower, because when you do buy it lower, you'll be using that money that you got from selling it, and your hope is that you'll only have to use a portion of that money, right? Just a fraction, because the stock will have gone down. And so, once you buy those shares and end that short position, you have just profited if the stock dropped while you shorted it. Short is actually not a bad term, because it's punning, unintentionally, I think, but it's punning on short as in short term. It's usually a shorter term strategy. 
not a lot of people are going to make a lot of money by holding a long-term short. The most money you can ever make when you short a stock is 100%. What's the most money you can make when a stock goes up over time? Good news, you can make way more than 100%. Five baggers, 10 baggers, 1,000%, 2,000%. So, this is why I would only ever suggest shorting to people who are more advanced, who know what they're doing, and who have a shorter-term goal. Uh, maybe they're hedging. Uh, that's what a lot of people do when they short. They're just hedging against their longs. If the market drops, they're going to be partly happy. It reduces their losses. Or they found a company that they truly don't think is a good business, and they're short it, thinking it's going to drop. So, that's all a quick primer on shorting. And a short squeeze, to continue the learning here, Bill, a short squeeze, as you now know, because it sounds like you found a website, a short squeeze is when a lot of people have shorted a stock. So, think about it. If a lot of us have all gone out and shorted Apple, you sold your 100 shares, I sold my 100 shares, uh, lots of other people have besides, guess what has to happen next? What's the next transaction for each of us? Well, eventually, each of us is going to have to buy. And what happens when people buy on the stock market? Well, if a lot of people try to buy at once, a stock starts to go up. After all, demand is exceeding supply. Lots of demand to buy. So, if a ton of us, like millions of us, have shorted a stock, and we've all already done that, then there's some latent buying pressure waiting to happen. And it can ignite as almost a panic. If you start to buy back and the stock starts going up, and I'm short the stock, maybe I decide I want to get out before I start to lose money here. And so I buy, and a frenzy ignites, and it's called a short squeeze. The people who are short, are getting squeezed. They're jumping all over each other to try to buy ahead of everybody else to get out of that position. And this is what can happen. So now you know, I hope Bill Housley already knew, but now you know what a short is and what a short squeeze is. And the last thing that Bill asks about is percent of float. So the float for any stock is the percentage of shares that are actually out there on the market that you and I can trade. So if Jeff Bezos owns 20% of Amazon. I haven't checked recently. Might be something like that. The man is extremely wealthy. If if an entrepreneur owns 20% of his company, presumably those those shares are sequestered. They're salted away. They're not going to be traded. That's a long-term family holding of that entrepreneur. So we'd say since 20% is out, the float is only 80%. In other words, there's really only eight in ten shares out that you and I can buy and sell as investors on the stock market. Now there are some companies that have very high insider holdings. Um, some public companies, the entrepreneur owns more than half the shares, or maybe a large institution does. And so, for this reason, for some stocks, the float is lower. For a lot of stocks, let's take Anheuser-Busch InBev. These are massive companies, General Electric, where very few people own any meaningful percentage anymore. So, it's like almost 100% of the shares are available for very large companies today. Uh, so, the float's near 100%, but for smaller companies, the float can be less. And to end this shaggy dog, I hope this was a helpful mailbag point, to end this long story that I'm telling you about shorts, it can be very dangerous to short a stock with a thin float with a smaller percentage of shares than the entire pie that are actually available to trade. You can imagine if the percent of float is 80% or less and a short squeeze happens, it can get really ugly really fast for the shorts. So, I hope I've illuminated some of these concepts. I hope I've taught one or two fools, new fools, about how to short. Again, it's something I don't do much anymore because 
I just find my time generally rewarded being long. Also, I'm a lazy bum, as I've mentioned many times before, and you have to be a lot more active when you're short. Thanks, Bill. All right, and the last two, after a very investment-heavy mailbag, the last two are a little bit more whimsical. Oh, look, I've got a question from myself. Number six this month is from David Gardner, and David's asking about Myers-Briggs. Well, it's interesting you'd mention that, David. Now, Myers-Briggs is one of those kind of personality tests. It's one of the better-known ones. A lot of people know their Myers-Briggs. There are eight dynamics that you're being scored on, and they're paired. There are four paired groups, so I'll give a quick, easy one to understand. There's, are you an extrovert or are you an introvert? And since I'm defining my terms this month, I might as well just point out that extroverts typically are perceived as people who get energy from being around other people, whereas introverts often feel like they have their energy sapped, maybe too much, by being around too many other people. There are, I'm sure, other better definitions of introvert and extrovert, but Myers-Briggs does that. It says, are you more of an introvert, an I, or are you an extrovert, an E? And you answer a bunch of questions that are kind of seemingly not even about extroversion or introversion, but you're just saying, you know, do you enjoy playing with your dog? And you just say yes or no. And if you've taken a Myers-Briggs test, I know many of us have, at the end, magically, you're told that you're an introvert or an extrovert. You're told that you're, you're a thinker or not as much a thinker. You're more of a feeler. And it kind of works this way. So I think what the question was asking is, should we be satisfied with being told that we are an I or an E and just kind of complacently settle into that and tell other people, well, you know, I'm an extrovert, therefore blank, or because I'm a feeler, I do this. And I understand that it can be very helpful for us to feel like we've been personality typed, and we can start saying, hey, what are you? And one of the fun things about Myers-Briggs is to ask somebody else what their letters are and see how you interface with that person. And there's some pattern recognition and some benefit to doing that. However, here's my thought or challenge for you, a non-investment challenge for you at the end of 2016 as we look forward to 2017. If you're one of those Myers-Briggs people and for me, I've never officially done the test, but you can take these online versions. And I'm, I'm apparently an ENTP these days, if anybody really cares about that. I used to be an ENTF, but I flipped from F to P uh, in the last few years. If you're a Myers-Briggs person, I don't think you and I should too firmly settle into the notion of what we are. In fact, I think it's kind of a two-dimensional model in a 3D world. So my thought for you, it's a rhetorical one, is shouldn't you be trying to develop as best you can your capacities in each of these things? I think each of us should be trying to be the best introvert that we can be and the best extrovert we can be, because we're going to be in both of those circumstances a lot in life, and you should be trying to max out and be good. You should try to be the best thinker that you can possibly be, and you should attempt to feel emotion, empathy as much as possible. So I've often found And there are other schemes, forget about Myers-Briggs, there are other schemes here where you're told you're one thing and not the other, but I really think each of us, as we grow and mature, should be trying to be the most awesome thing at each of these letters, not saying, I'm this one, not that one. Well, thanks for a surprising and somewhat offbeat question, David. And the last mailbag item to close 2016. This one is short and sweet. It's from at Salim Basul. Some of you will instantly recognize that Twitter handle. He wrote simply, Tom and you are a big inspiration to me. I'm a total fan of The Fools. And I have to say, that is the single most flattering mailbag item I've received in 2016. 
And the only reason that that's true is because Salim Basul is the CEO of a stock that my brother found years and years ago, and I found more recently, and that is Middleby Corporation, which is a company many people haven't heard of. But Middleby, whose ticker symbol is MIDD, and this is an active pick in Motley Fool Rule Breakers. In fact, on at least one of my stock picking Rule Breaker Investing podcasts, I've definitely fingered Middleby uh, with a green thumb up for all of us. Middleby has been an outstanding investment. In fact, I'm looking at a stock chart. Feel free to use your favorite tool online. I'm on bigcharts.com right now, which is owned by MarketWatch, which I've used for years. But I'm looking at the stock graph right now from 2002 to 2016. So that is now 15 full years. The S&P 500 looks like a flat line over the course of those 15 years, even though it had some good years and hasn't been too bad since 2002. And that's simply because Middleby Corporation is up right around 14,000%. So, anytime you're trying to put both lines on the same graph, and one is up at 14,000%, it almost doesn't matter whether the other one's at 100 or 200, it looks like a flat line. So, there have been few better CEOs in America than Salim Basul. And if that's not a name you recognize, then I would encourage you to pay attention to what Middleby Corporation is doing, and specifically the story of Salim Basul, a Lebanese immigrant and somebody who has built an absolutely spectacular business that serves all of its stakeholders, whether we're talking about customers or partners, or in this case, we're talking about shareholders. So, Salim, Tom and I are highly flattered by that. Thank you very much. And keep up the great work on behalf of so many Motley Fool members who own your stock and many others. Best wishes for a profitable 2017 and beyond. And with that said, that is Rule Breaker Investing in the year of 2016. I'm David Gardner, and I want to thank, as I am sometimes want to do, my outstanding producer, Rick Engdahl, for listening to more flub-ups by me than my wife, than all of my friends combined every single week. Rick edits. You don't hear this, but I do things like, oops, I screwed that up. Rick, let me take that again. Three, two, one, and I do that over and over again. So, if I sound seamless and eloquent to you, I'm not. Rick makes me sound like that because we can post-produce. Rick, thank you very much for a wonderful 2016, and I'm looking forward to working with you in 2017 and beyond. And most of all, I thank, of course, you, my fellow Rule Breaker. Thank you for suffering fools gladly throughout 2016. I'm excited about the year ahead. Let me close by saying you can check out past episodes of Rule Breaker Investing and indeed all of the Motley Fool podcasts at our podcast center. Just go to podcasts.fool.com. And while you're there, you can check out our subscription services. A new issue of our Rule Breaker service comes out with two new stock recommendations from me the last Wednesday of the month. You can check it out by going to the Podcast Center and scrolling to the bottom of the page. That's podcasts.fool.com. I'm David Gardner. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.